That's the best part about all this, getting to meet so many great people who managed to work this stuff in to their, their life, their civics lifestyle. We got to address the suburban women problem because it's real. Welcome to the Suburban Women Problem, a podcast for red, wine, and blue. Hi, everyone, and thanks for listening to the Suburban Women Problem. I'm Rachel Vindman, and this holiday season, we're doing the podcast a little differently. For the rest of the year, my co-host and I will be taking turns going deep on what we learned from the midterms, talking with experts and people who worked hard in their own communities. There are so many victories to celebrate and so many lessons to learn. Today, I am joined by my good friend, Victor Shi to talk about the youth vote. Victor is a writer, speaker, organizer, podcast host, and a student at UCLA. And sometimes I do ask him, how are you doing in your classes? How are you getting everything done? Because I cannot turn off the mom switch. Victor, I am so glad you could join me on the Suburban Women Problem. Anything for you, Rachel. Thanks so much for having me. First, I just want to say before we get into it, I want you to tell the story of in August when Alex and I had dinner with you and what <laughs> happened because it's still one of my favorite oh my things. It's it was amazing. So we were all at a great restaurant in DC called Founding Farmers. If you've ever been in DC, it's like DC classic. We were eating great food. And that was the day I remember um, Alex just came out with a piece uh, about Russia and it was a great long piece. And then we were just sitting there. I think we were wrapping up and then we found out that the FBI searched Mar-a-Lago and we were yes. all like, oh my goodness. I and know. As as we all know, I mean, that's become the biggest, one of the biggest stories leading politics in the news. And so, I mean, we just all were like, what is going on? And so we took yes. a photo and we were like, this is what <laughs> happens when uh, <laughs> democracy works. I know. It was so incredible. I just love it. Everyone in the restaurant was kind of looking at their phones and I'm like, what's going on? And then we noticed it's really bizarre. Yes. Yeah. You know, actually, that's kind of, you know, so we've talked a lot about on the pod about how important young people were to the Democratic wins this year. Could you tell us more about how important the youth vote was in last month's midterms? So I don't think I can overstate how important young voters were last month for helping Democrats win uh, the Senate and then also prevent a red wave in the House. Historically, as I'm sure your audience knows, and as you know really well, midterms are usually a referendum on the president and the political party that's in power. Average, uh, usually the Senate loses about six seats, 28 seats in uh, the House. This time we are on track to hopefully gain one seat in Georgia. Um, all eyes are on Georgia, but in the Senate, or I guess in the House, um, we really staved off a red wave and, you know, numbers show probably a, maybe a margin of 10 Republicans to Democrats. So it's going to, it's a really, really good news for uh, Democrats, I think. And if you look at some of the battleground states where young voters turned out most, it was states like Pennsylvania, states like Michigan, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Those are the states that really made a difference uh, for Democrats in the House and also the Senate. And I think um, we can't, um, under, I guess, overstate just how important young voters are. And we can kind of dive deeper into the numbers there. But I think at the end of the day, they really helped prevent this red wave that a lot of pundits and pollsters were predicting ahead of the midterm elections. Mm-hmm. You know, thinking back to that raid on Mar-a-Lago, this issue of accountability, because yeah. We need something from our elected officials. Do you do you hear that from your friends, from your peers when you're doing this? Do you hear that it, these things are important to them? Because you and I have discussed when I went around and I was talking to women and during my trip, I was in contact with you a lot. Like 
what people were saying was not what the national media was saying. So exactly, tell yeah. me what you hear from youth, I guess. That's my question. What do you hear from young voters? What is important to them? And what do maybe us older people um, not quite understand? So I think if you look at what's being portrayed by a lot of the political pundits and the mainstream news, I would say there's a disconnect between what they cover and what young people care about. And I just remember this really vividly. I was um, watching the first January 6th hearing um, with a bunch of friends, um, I guess older friends at Kathy Griffin's house. And we were all so just connected to the TV screen. We were, you know, just kind of taking that moment in and really giving it the attention and seriousness that it deserves. And I was asking some of my friends about whether or not they watched the committee hearing and not one single person watched the hearing. And I I can only think back, that was during, I think, the beginning of May or the beginning of June, end of May. And that was right after the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp uh, hearing. And that was a hearing that captured a lot of young people on our attention. But if you think about what young people care about, it's not really January 6th. I think a lot of young people do acknowledge January 6th as a serious event, but they don't really pay attention to some of the hearings and a lot of the things that the news media, I think, pays attention to. Instead, I think it's a lot about just what's a media in our lives. So I think tangibly, that's things like student loan debt. You know, a lot of college students are facing the burden of this massive tuition uh, and costs on our lives. Other things like climate change. We all live in this world where climate is becoming definitely warmer. We're seeing um, the effects of human-made global emissions. And so I think that's really important for young people too. And also things like just our rights being taken away starting in June. That's really where you saw a lot of young people become galvanized and motivated to make their voices heard, register to vote, and ultimately wait in lines and cast their ballots uh, a couple of weeks ago in the midterm elections. But I think a lot of it, um, you know, I think deep down we know how important accountability is, but a lot of what the mainstream media focuses on day in, day out, just aren't the things that I think young people care about and talk about on a regular basis. Speaking of which, tell us about your new project. (laughs) So I'm kind of against that backdrop of the news media. You know, I think the news media does a good job of shedding light, but just a lot of the things that I've been hearing from young people and just people in general is that they don't really watch cable news. And so um, I basically launched a show with Politicon, which is a podcast media organization called On The Move. And um, the whole premise of the show is to get people who are on the move, always busy to kind of understand the news of the day, learn how they can make a difference. And um, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, we bring on a guest to um, help our audience make sense of the news. And I know next week, uh, you and Alex are going to be on, which I'm so excited about. Thank you. We have very different ways of looking at the news. So that'll be fun for you. (laughs) Just kidding. Um, (laughs) Well, I think this is so key because there are people who love cable news. And again, this is no dig on them, but we've got to find other ways to reach other people. Like podcasts are great for some people. And I listen to a lot of podcasts myself, but I think having these multiple ways and, you know, of, of getting new sources, that's not, you know, we were just bless our heart. We were at my grandmother's for Thanksgiving and it was around like, I don't think six o'clock or something. She was like, oh, we need to turn on the news. And I was like, why? She goes, I need to watch the weather. <laughs> it's like, don't, don't you have a phone? Um, but you know, for her, like she trusts her weather people mm-hmm. in her town. I mean, which, which admittedly it's Oklahoma and they are like really excellent meteorologists there, but I don't think you need to like hear from them, like what temperature that's going to be, but everyone has their trusted sources. And I right. totally am into that. 
But Mm -hmm. if I were a college student, I'd rather hear from another college student, like, because I think our priorities would be more in line than turning on a podcast, um, you know, with my mom's friends or whatever. So, I mean, like, I just love the project. I love what you're doing. And I think it's good that you're bringing people like old people on like me, you know, or an Alex, people who have something to offer. But again, Mm -hmm. the questions that your perspective, the questions you're going to ask and where you're going to come from is what matters to your audience. And that's really the key because you can have experts, but you know, how are you framing it and what is the narrative and, you know, making sure that that is important for, again, specifically for your audience. So, you know, you and I talk a lot, I I bounce ideas off of you. And I'm always appreciative of your opinion, because I think there is a lot of overlap between young people and suburban women. Um, What what do you think the overlaps are? I think the overlap is quite clear. And especially after uh, the abortion decision, that's, I think, where you saw the most overlap. You saw this abortion decision basically, I guess, really overturned the right for women to access abortion. That included a lot of suburban women, also just young girls who are uh, maybe in college who might be thinking about it or who might, you know, uh, that was one thing they kind of found comfort in. Uh, And I think that's kind of where the biggest overlap to me happened in this midterm election when you saw a lot of suburban women, and especially in Kansas, that was one election where I think you saw a bunch of suburban women register to vote in record-breaking numbers. Also, a lot of Gen Z uh, girls and and women go out there and register to vote. Mm -hmm. And that's where you saw an election where a lot of pundits never uh, really anticipated that, never predicted that. But the combination of Gen Zers who were concerned about abortion rights Mm -hmm. being overturned and then also suburban women, those two groups really, I think, galvanized and mobilized together and then showed up at the ballot box. But I think there are a lot of commonalities too, because if you think about, you know, just students and and, our parents, uh, a lot of students, at least that I talk to, come from the suburbs. And so um, I think that's a really important kind of connection to have just suburban parents, suburban women, suburban fathers having those conversations with their college students, because a lot of those kind of go hand in hand. One of the interesting things that I've been looking at, at least from down in Georgia, is the vote among Gen Zers really matches that of their parents. So if you look at the rates among um, people between the ages of 50 and 59, it's pretty similar to the turnout among 18 to 29 year olds. And so um, I think that's an interesting connection, but there's very a really big I think, overlap between the two. Yeah. Yeah. That's very interesting. What do you think that people my age can learn from young voters such as yourself? I think it's just the importance of, I think, the inclusion and perspective of young voices. I think a lot of the time when, I guess, older generations try to talk to younger generations, there's kind of this kind of lecturous lecturish tone where, you know, they tell us that every election is so important. You know, your voice is going to be um, absolutely critical. You know, like if you don't vote, the world is going to, you know, do become doomed. Whereas I think we have to kind of change the way that we talk to young voters and really understand one kind of where they're coming from, starting from a place of listening to some of our concerns and then really making sure that we empower young people to get involved. Uh, I know we've had this conversation before, but a lot of the times I think that, you know, the media is partly responsible for this, but we think of a lot about politics in terms of national um, kind of lenses. So we think about what's happening on the federal level and that becomes hard for young people, I think, to kind of feel like we can make a difference. And so if we can think about politics as being local, which is, I think, what it should be, um, we can make young people become 
become more comforted, become more empowered to take action in their community. And I think if um, older generations can have those conversations, listen to young voters and, and offer them tangible ways to basically get involved, I think that's some of the most important thing. And then just young voters, I think what makes this generation so unique is that we are the most diverse generation in America. We are the most digitally connected generation in America. So we kind of offer something new in terms of how we think about what tables we want to build, which voices we want to include, um, some of the social media platforms. And uh, we are always willing to help our uh, older generations sort through the TikTok, uh, I guess, platforms of the world. <laughs> I, I I think that's great. And I think we need to do less talking at you and more like, hey, let's work together. Let's do something. Yeah, you know, right. Let's build something. Let's do something. And less like go vote and more Let's listen and figure out what we, you know, beyond voting, what we need to do to create this community yeah. that continues to serve each other way beyond an election. If, if I can just say one thing that I that has stuck with me since um, really my first year of um, high school, I had this one teacher who used this term called the civics lifestyle. And the the kind of point behind that is that, you know, we all take government class, we all vote or should vote in every election, which happens every two years. But the conversation should really be beyond mm -hmm. elections and beyond yeah, just government yeah. class. And we should be having those conversations all the time. Because like you said, we tell so many constituencies, especially in the Democratic Party, people like, you know, black voters, young voters, women voters, that every election is so important. You should go out there and vote. But what happens after elections? We should really sustain mm -hmm. those conversations. And yeah. it takes a lot of us just having those one-on-one -on -one conversations, the Democratic Party, building the infrastructure, not just a couple of weeks before the election, but all throughout um, the year. And really making sure that you know Black voters, young voters, women voters, people who showed up and voted for Democrats know how their vote is being translated and how that's being affected into real policy. Because that's, I think, how you build the momentum. But kind of always thinking in that civics lifestyle mindset, I think. I love that term, civics lifestyle. And if I could, you know, back to the question, yeah. what I would hope that your generation could learn from my generation is that complacency has serious consequences. Mm -hmm. So whether it's complacency about letting hate speech slide because you just want to ignore people. And by the way, a very prominent person sent my husband an email earlier this week and said about, you know, his conflict with Elon Musk. And he said, you know, at this point, I think it's just best to ignore him. And I was like, yeah, couldn't disagree with you more. But so many of the people that I met, the women that I met in the communities, the extremism in their communities, they fully recognized was born from complacency. And it's really normal to get b busy with your life and go on and do things, but we can't forget to have, like you said, that civics lifestyle of just, this is part of what we do. We are talking about it. We are working towards it. And, you know that that's um a part of our just just a normal thing so then you can't forget it you know because it's it's just you know a, a part of how you're living your life definitely what do you think so you really are aware of this whole CRT thing like generation because you you've lived it or at least you know whether it was in your area but you know it's been it's definitely been part of the conversations in your lifetime so what do you think about the impact of that what does the youth think of the CRT slash anti-CRT movements that we hear so much about? I mean, I think young people can see right through what Republicans have been trying to do in states across the country. I mean, it's 
it, it was one of those things where it's so absurd. And anyone who has any critical thinking skills, anyone who has gone through school knows that we aren't being brainwashed. You know, a lot of Republicans say that, you know, critical race theory is being taught in middle school, elementary school, high school. That's something that's taught in law school. I mean, we don't learn how to have those conversations in middle school, high school. I mean, we, I mean, we think about in history class, for instance, you know, some curriculum like, you know, what is our history? You know, some of the impacts that slavery has, but we don't learn about critical race theory. That's a really complex topic. And when young people hear about that, we're like, we, we've never learned about that. So I think young people kind of saw right through it, but it kind of followed this broader pattern from the Republic, Republican Party and especially in Republican controlled states of trying to control what can be said in the classroom. And that was an attack and affront on a lot of young people on our just way of life in the classroom. You think of the don't say gay bills starting in Florida and spreading throughout the country. That was something that young people saw and young people felt constricted. Teachers felt constricted. We really felt the impact of that. And then critical race theory, trying to you know limit what type of conversations we can have in the classroom. The classroom is somewhere where young people should feel safe to talk about anything that comes up. Those would be interesting conversations, fascinating conversations between teachers and students. And if a teacher fears what he or she can say or what they can say, and if a young person fears what they can say, it doesn't end well. And I think young people really realized that and responded in this midterm election saying, we are so fed up with yeah. this nonsense. Oh, I love that. I mean, we were recently in the UK and I was texting you know, because Alex was um, mm-hmm. doing a debate at Oxford Union College. Yeah. And afterwards, it was like, you know, a debate, you know, with like lots of thoughts on each side. And afterwards, our daughter said to us, Mama, you were talking to that guy on the other side. I mean, that guy, by the way, was like a Harvard law professor who had argued in front of the Supreme Court. So Oh, wow. I mean, I was like an honor of mine to speak to him. And and she was, and I said, well, yes, honey. I mean, people can talk about things and disagree. And I really, there wasn't yeah. so much disagreement. It was a debate, you know, but I realized, you know, she hasn't had that experience. And I was mm-hmm. so excited for her thinking about what's coming in her future, which is only in sixth grade now, but high school and college and being yeah. able to engage in this debate no hard feelings. You can be passionate about things, but you don't have to take it personally. But that exchange of ideas is so, so powerful. And it doesn't mean that you're going to completely change your point of view, but you're going to take some more with you and learn from that. And I think whether that's a high school classroom or a college classroom, um, when we talk about your generation and how connected you are and how diverse you are, that's something you really value. And I'm, I'm very happy to hear that. And I, I'm going to always suspect that it was the case. Like you're not going to stand for that. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's the kind of exchange that you guys want. One more quick question before Georgia's on our mind. So give us, let us tell us what's going on in Georgia with the youth vote. Oh oh my gosh. Yeah. So Georgia's on all of our minds. This vote (laughs) is going to be so critical. I think, you know, this is one of the things where I wish I learned, you know, this in like government class or in um, civics class, but you know, this 51st seat really, really matters. And um, I was talking with some people about just how critical this is. And, you know, if you think about the committees right now, uh, even, you know, we have currently 50 Democrats, 50 Republicans. Every committee has to have an even number of Democrats and Republicans, which means, you know, the chances of anything happening now, especially in this political era, is slim to none. Any bipartisanship is out the door with this Senate. So to have 51 senators and 49 or 51 Democrats and 49 Republicans is going to make all the difference because what that means is that every committee can have a majority of Democrats and the chances of something being uh, introduced on the floor of the Senate, of things 
you know, going into debate becomes all the more likely. And so that's why it's so important, this election. And I think also just not electing someone like Herschel Walker. I mean, the fact that he's getting so much of, I guess, as much of the Georgia vote as he's getting right now is very concerning. But I will say, here's the comforting part. Right now, early vote is through the roof. Um, We're seeing so many people go out there and vote. People are standing in lines. People are really turning out to vote. And it's been barely a week since early voting started. Um, We're recording this podcast on Thursday, and there's one more day left for people to go out there and vote. But I think the numbers look really good for um, Reverend Warnock. And it's going to be really hard, I think, for Republicans to match this on Election Day, because, you know, we were talking about this offline, but Republicans have made it their strategy in Georgia and all across the country to limit early voting, you know, tell their Republican constituency not to vote by mail. And that's such a, I think, absurd strategy, because if you're relying on all the votes on election day, I mean, there's just so much that can happen, so many unpredictable variables. And I think that's what you're seeing right now is a lot of the Democrats are turning out to vote, but a lot of the Republicans just aren't going out there to vote because Republicans have told them, you know, this isn't a good form of voting. Yeah, I think this is going to be the nail in the coffin. They're definitely going to either embrace early voting or go all in against early voting. Um, But you and I talk about this all the time, like, why don't you want less people to vote? We should want more people to vote and engage. It's just silly. Actually, I think they're going to embrace that. I think they're going to embrace like getting people to to vote more. But Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm not going to try to um, predict how they are going because it's it's often counterintuitive so yeah. i will it's it's a it's a little bit of a silly thing to, and they just um, elected lauren bober to head or i guess not head but be on the republican policy conference oh my the committee next what term, could go is... wrong <laughs> right stay in school kids that's all i have to say yeah. okay well um at the end of every episode we usually do a toast to joy where we share something mm-hmm. positive that happened in our week in these four weeks of special episodes, we want to broaden things out a little bit and do a 2022 Toast to Joy. So, Victor, what was a moment or a bit of news that brought you hope and joy in this year? Oh my gosh, there's there's it's been a it's been a really wild year, but I would say, I mean, it has to be what we saw with this midterm election. I think we saw so many people discount young voters and there was an article in Politico and other magazines basically saying that, you know, young voters are MIA and young people really showed up. And and I was, um, you know, I was in DC during election um, day weekend. I think you were in London. And I remember we were all kind of set up in, in this room in DC and um, we were trying to collect videos from college campuses to see how many people were in line and showing up to vote. And I mean, I was really just overcome with emotion seeing places like University of Michigan the last person who voted there was at 1:36 a.m. I believe they voted for they they waited in line for six hours to go vote. I mean, it says a lot about democracy and kind of the state of democracy when you have lines that long, and that's something that we should all fix. But young people really showed up, and that's one of the highlights. And then also, I mean, honestly, meeting new people like you and Alex has been one of the highlights of my year. Um, we I know we recorded a podcast earlier this year, and then we met in person for the first time in DC uh, earlier this summer. And um, ever since, I've been grateful to call you and Alex my friend. And so that's something I'm very grateful for and has brought me a lot of joy. So thank you for that. Well, same. And my toast of joy this year, actually, I have to say it's very similar to yours. Um I was very anxious leading up to the midterms. One thing that I try to tell people is just because I have hope and, you know, I was hopeful and I thought I knew that things would go, you know, pretty well, reasonably well. It doesn't mean that I wasn't worried or concerned. And I think you can help, you know, kind of hold both at the same time. They're not mutually exclusive. Yeah. 
It's really meaningful, though, to work so hard for something and to yeah. really put everything into it and see the you know fruits of your labor. And both of us, I think we worked with groups that um, are kind of finding their way for the not really for the first time, but understanding this huge power that they hold. And um, and I hope in the coming years, you know, before the next presidential election, that we'll we'll see a more embracing of these groups of of women of um, mm-hmm. young people to say what is important to you. We want to listen to you because you know we have showed up, and that's what you've been telling people for so long is like, show up, you'll get results. And then also they'll want to know your thoughts and want to listen to you and what's important to you. And like you, meeting people, working with people, meeting new friends has been an absolute highlight of 2022. And I hope to continue it in the future. That's the best part about all this. Like, I I really don't love the word activist, but but like in, in my activism is getting to meet so many great people who managed to work this stuff in to their their life, their civics lifestyle of how they can um, just bring it in and have it be their, you know, everyday life. So that is um, my toast to joy for 2022. And I hope to do it all again in 2023. Victor, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Where can listeners find out more about you and your work? You have a lot of work, so... It's it's easiest to find me on Twitter if it survives. Okay. Um, I know we've also been talking about Mastodon and Post. Mm-hmm. I, I just uh, got approved on Post, so I'm there. At, I think my username is Victor She, um, and then on Mastodon, it's like oh god, like Victor She at Ohi Social or something. It's one of those okay. channels and servers. Um, yeah. But you can find most of my work on Twitter. I usually post there most often, um, and then I'll try to post on Post and um, Mastodon too. Awesome. Yeah. Post is, is actually quite promising. And I know they're really trying yes, to I get agree. more voices on there and diverse voices as well. So doing a good job. Well, thank you everyone for listening to the Suburban Women Problem. We'll see you again next week. The Suburban Women Problem was created by Red Wine and Blue. Our executive producer is Beverly Batt. Our supervising producer is Lindsay Quist. Our producer and editor is Amy Thorstenson. Our production coordinator is Abigail Martin. And our social media coordinator is Shaylee Severino. Videos by Abigail Martin and Ashley Hufford. If you want to join the thousands of women who are turning out their friends and family to vote, you can sign up for the great troublemaker turnout by going to redwine.blue.